Well, welcome to the beginning of our time together, this class called How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Student. And I'll tell you where I got the idea for this course, and that is I found this book that I started reading, and it's called How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Professor. And I thought, well, that's a great concept. Let's lower the bar just a little bit. And so uh, I just want you to know that a lot of the things that I'll be teaching will be coming directly from this book, How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Professor. But in, in addition to this book, uh, there's lots of other resources I'll be using. For example, How to Eat Your Bible, uh, Living by the Book, Howard Hendricks. If you don't get any other book about Bible study, you ought to have this one. I'll say that one more time. If you don't have any other book regarding how to study your Bible, you ought to consume this book. Uh, the cover may look different. These, this is an old copy. But Living by the Book, Howard Hendricks. And then uh, another one is Discover the Book God Wrote, Bill Bright. So just to let you know some of the resources that, that I will be using as we have this time together. I really, really like the concept of this book, How to Read Your Bible, like a seminary professor or a seminary student. Uh, and the reason I like this concept is because I realize not many people have the opportunity to go to seminary. There's some of us here tonight who have. Uh, a lot of our staff have been to seminary. We've got former pastors here that have been to seminary. Uh, and, but it's a unique thing to have that opportunity, to have that privilege to to move away and study somewhere uh, about the Bible, to, to go to seminary. I've had the privilege of studying at two of our seminaries. Uh, here's a picture of the first seminary I went to. This is Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, this is where Lisa and I moved. It's in Fort Worth, Texas. This is where we went right after we got married in 1983. I spent three years there, and literally that building that you see in the picture was across the street from our apartment. And so that, that picture brings back a lot of memories for me, a lot of great memories, because from 1983 to 1986, and that's not the only building on campus, but I was in that building a lot and a lot of the other buildings and just trying to learn how to be a pastor. But the reason I bring that up is not to impress you that I went to seminary, and I'm going to show you one other picture in a moment, but the reason I bring that up is because I got to thinking about, as I looked at this picture, I got to thinking about how you give your tithes and offerings every Sunday, and how we, as a church family, we take a percentage of everything that you give and we send it to something called the Cooperative Program. And through the Cooperative Program, Southern Baptists pool their money together across the United States. Southern Baptists pool their money together. And out of that pool of money, one of the things we do with that money is to support six seminaries. This being one of them. Now, you didn't pay for my education, but you offset my education. In other words, my seminary training, I had to pay for it, but it was a lot, lot cheaper when I went there to get my master's in theology. It was a lot, lot cheaper than it would have been anywhere else. So here's the thing I want you to get. In 1983, when you were giving your tithes and offerings in this church, part of that money was going to Southwestern Seminary, and you were helping to pay for the training of your future pastor. Isn't that incredible? And as today, as you give your tithes and offerings, you may yet again be helping to pay for the training of your future pastor. Now, I'm not going anywhere, Pam. I'm not going anywhere. 
Every time I say something like that, Pam comes up to me and asks, okay, let me ask you about that. I'm not going anywhere. Lord willing, I'm not going anywhere. But the truth of the matter is, when you support missionaries, when you support the seminaries by giving your tithes and offerings, you're training pastors. And I just want to thank you for doing that. So I had the honor and the privilege of Lisa and I being at Southwestern Seminary. And then I also had the privilege of going to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, spent three years there. Basically, that's where I worked on my doctorate. Most challenging time of my life, for sure. But, but I recognize that though it was challenging, it was a growing time. And I also recognize that it was a privilege that is, again, not afforded to most people. So I'm thrilled to have the chance to share with you some of the things that perhaps I learned in seminary and some of the things from this book on how to read your Bible like a seminary student. I'm thrilled to be able to say to share with you some of those things. But let me say this. There was a reason I went through all of this and showed you all those pictures. I want you to hear me say this. You don't have to have a seminary education to understand your Bible. I want to make sure you have that deep in your spirit. You do not have to have a seminary education to understand your Bible. My dad didn't have even a high school education. This is a picture of him reading his Bible. And it's, it's, it's a poor quality because it's a, it's a photo of a photo. But, but it's one of my favorite memories of my dad is him sitting in the lawn chair reading his Bible Every evening in the summer, I would see that again and again and again. When I was 17 years old, I snuck and took this picture, and he never knew I took it. But I didn't want to forget that. As a 17-year-old young man, it impressed me that my dad read his Bible every day and that he knew his Bible. And I want to tell you something. He was one of the best Bible teachers I've ever seen. And he didn't even have a high school education. But he knew his Bible. So I want you to understand that though we're talking about how to read your Bible like a seminary student, you don't have to have a seminary education to do that. See, the purpose of this study is not to say you've been reading your Bible wrong. Let me show you the right way. That's not the purpose of this study. The purpose of this study is to say, let me show you a way to read your Bible perhaps even better. So that's what we're going to be working on. This five-week course, my goal is very simple. I want to teach you a process of understanding what the author intended when he wrote the Scriptures. Let me say that one more time. In this five-week course, I want to teach you a process of understanding what the author intended when he wrote the Scriptures. The process, by the way, is known as interpretation. I want to teach you about interpretation as we go through these five weeks together. That is a key word. We're going to learn how to interpret the Word of God. What did the author intend when he wrote the Scriptures? Now, I want to give you an example of how too often this is what happens in, in in Bible studies. And I'm not knocking anybody if this has happened this Sunday. If, if you did this this morning, I don't know about it. I'm just guessing. Nobody told me this, okay? Open your Bibles to Romans 13.1. Very appropriate scripture. Romans 
I'd like to ask somebody in the congregation tonight, would you read out loud, maybe even stand and read it so everybody can hear it, would you read out loud for us Romans 13, verse 1? Who would stand and read that for us? If you don't want to stand, at least... Okay, go ahead. Thank you, Carol. All right. Now, when we do something like this, I've been in these classes. I grew up in a little church where if we had 45 on Sunday, it was a high attendance day. That was the church I grew up in. Uh, so, so here's what I want you to understand. I've been in this class before. So again, I want to say before somebody gets offended, I am not knocking the way you teach the Bible. I'm just telling you what I have experienced in these classes. I've been in my home church, and we would read a scripture like that, and I would, the, the teacher would call on Carol or somebody, Carol, would you read Romans 13.1? And then the teacher would say, now Carol, what does that verse mean to you? What does that verse mean to you? Thank you. You answered that very well. (laughs) But listen to me. There is a better way for us to approach the Word of God than what does that verse mean to you? See, here's what, what you need to hear me say. If the Bible can mean whatever you want it to mean, then the text has no meaning at all. What does that verse mean to you is not a very good question when it comes to Bible study. Because if the Bible can mean whatever you want it to mean, it has no meaning at all. Reading the Bible becomes kind of like watching the clouds. Uh, You see one thing, I see something else, but we're both looking at the same thing. We just have different interpretations of of the clouds we see in the sky. Here's, write this on your notes. Your opinion should not shape the text. Your opinion should not shape the text. Now, your opinion is important. And what does that mean to you is in some ways a a, a way of asking for application. How could we apply this verse? It's a way of participation for sure. You're trying to get your, your folks to participate in the Bible study. So it's not an awful question. I'm just saying there's a better question. Because our opinions should not be what shapes the text. If you're going to read the Bible like a seminary student, then there is a basic question you need to learn to focus on. Here's the question that is a better question. What did the author intend the text to mean? That's a much better question. What did the author intend the text to mean? Now there's four statements I want to make regarding that question. And I want you to write these down. There's, they're not going to be on a PowerPoint slide. But there's four statements that I, I want to give you to help you understand the importance of this question. So here are the statements. Number one. Words have meaning and there are boundaries to what words can mean. Words have meaning. And there are boundaries to what words can mean. So one of the ways that you interpret Scripture is to study the words that the author used. Because words have meaning. And there are boundaries to what words can mean. Statement number two. The author was divinely inspired to choose the words he used. I believe this with all of my heart, that every word of the Bible is is divinely inspired. 
So there was a reason the Holy Spirit of God inspired that author to use the words that he used. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to say, what does that mean to you? A better question would be, what did the author mean when he used those words, when God divinely inspired him to put those words on paper? Statement number three. The author wrote those words in a real-life context. The author wrote those words in a real-life context. In other words, when the author wrote whatever passage it is that you're reading, he was writing either to a church or to an individual or to a group of people. There was a a problem he was addressing. There was a situation he was explaining, but there was a real-life context. He was not simply reading or writing in an ivory tower trying to write Scripture. It was writing in a context, and the better we know that context, the better we understand this question. What did the author intend the text to mean? One of the ways we get at the answer to that question, we study words. Another way that we get at the answer to that question is, we study the context. What was the context in which the author wrote? Because he always wrote in a real life context. And the fourth statement is this. The original audience understood the message that the author intended. It was an original audience. It was always an an original audience. A person or a group of people that he was writing to. And they understood the message that the author was conveying. So again, if you really want to understand Scripture, if you really want to interpret Scripture, you've got to come back to... What did the author intend the text to mean? So this is kind of our task over the next five weeks. We're going to learn perhaps how to do that a little bit better. We're going to follow some dependable rules of interpretation to help us connect with the biblical text. Because, listen to this, this is the good part. When you properly connect with the biblical text, you not only connect with that author, you also connect with the divine author. What is it that God is trying to say? What is it that God wants us to know? See, the Bible, unlike any other book, contains words of life because it is the Word of God. And it is worth the effort it takes to properly interpret. Rather than asking, what does that mean to you? It's worth the effort to say, what did it mean to the original audience? And what was the author trying to convey? So tonight, we're going to focus on basically the structure of the Bible. That's going to be what we really focus on. Uh, The Bible was put together in a certain way, and if you understand how the Bible is put together, it will help you better understand the individual text that you're reading. Uh, This will help you to get your arms around the text and to have confidence in working with various books. So tonight, in our remaining time... We're going to talk about the structure of the Bible. And probably next week we'll talk about the story and the substance of the Bible. So that when someone says, turn to Habakkuk, you don't feel lost. Because you understand the structure of the, of the Bible. And you understand the big story of the Bible. And you can see how it all fits together. My daughter and son-in-law live in James Island right outside of Charleston and they have a pool in their backyard. I was in it this year, this summer, 
uh, and I noticed that, you know, of course, at one end it's three foot and it's level, and the more you walk in one direction, the three foot goes up a little higher and it becomes three and a half foot, and you go keep going and it becomes four feet, and you keep going and it becomes five feet, but it's slow, it's gradual. And I don't, I don't know how deep it is at the very end, but, but my point is, as you go through uh, in that pool, you, you're slowly progressing through the pool, and it's a slow, gradual. You don't start out in the 12 foot. You start out in the 3 feet. And it gradually works its way down to the deeper waters. You need to understand that tonight we're starting out in the 3 foot section. And quite frankly, next week we'll be in the 3 foot section too. But if you'll stay with me, we're going, to meet, we're going to move to the deeper waters. For some of you, tonight is going to be like, man, I already knew that. And for some of you, even tomorrow, uh, next Sunday night, you'll think, I knew that too. I must have gone to seminary and I didn't even know about it. For some of you, because you've been in the Word of God for so long, this is not new information. For some of you, this will be new information. It'll be very helpful to you. But for all of us, it'll be a good review. But just understand, we're starting out in the three foot. But we're heading to the deeper waters, if you'll stay with me. Now, recently I told you that we went to North Carolina. And while we were in North Carolina at a cabin after Christmas, uh, one day I was working on a puzzle with my daughter Kelly and my granddaughter Lily. This, this is not the puzzle. I just got this out of one of the BSF classes there, children's classes. Uh, you know, there, there's basically three ways to work a puzzle. Did you know that? There's basically three ways to work a puzzle. Uh, you can, if you want to, you can just start by trying to fit the random pieces together. You can take the pieces out of the box, and you can just randomly try to put it together. That's a hard way to work the puzzle, but I suppose if you worked... Well, look right there. I got one together right there. And that, that wasn't intentional. But I suppose if you work at it hard enough, you can get the pieces to fit it's just going to take you a while have to put a lot of effort to it but that's one way just randomly pick up the pieces and try to fit them together now of course the other way to work the puzzle I mean, my wife is the world's greatest puzzle worker she's just really really good at it the, the other way is to find of course the corner pieces and what else are you looking for besides the corner pieces what else the straight edges yeah so if you get the corner pieces, and if you get all the pieces that have a straight edge, then you can have a frame, right? You get all those, those straight edges together with the corner pieces, you've got a frame. Then after that, you know that everything that comes out of the box has to fit within that frame. But there's another way to do this. That is to use the box top as your point of reference. That's the way I worked the puzzle in North Carolina with my daughter Kelly and my granddaughter. And here's what they would do. Uh, they're trying to, they had all the pieces. I'd pick up a piece, I'd look at it for a moment, and then I'd look at the box top and I did this. And I just, and I said, oh, right there, it goes right there. Move it over, it goes, it goes right beside the porch. See those red flowers? It goes right below the red flowers. If my wife had known I was doing that, she would have been furious. Not really, but... That's not the way she works a puzzle. She thinks it is against the law to use the box top. I mean, you're not working the puzzle if you use the box top. 
But this is where we are. Just follow me. For some of you, when you come to the Bible, you know some stories. How does it all fit? You know the story of David and Bathsheba? You know that story? You, you, you know the story of, of Peter walking on the water? You know that story? Uh, you know the story of Daniel and the lion's den? But when you try to put all of those things together, it's just kind of confusing and it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't seem, doesn't seem really to fit. You know some of the stories, but it doesn't seem to fit. Now, for some of you, you've been in church for a long time and, and you've got the framework down, Right? You know the corner pieces. You know there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. You know how many books are in the Old and how many books are in the New. You've got the framework of what everything is. And you know that everything that you read, it's going to fit within that framework. And you know a lot of the stuff, a lot of the framework. And so you're pretty good at this. And in fact, you're one of our BSF teachers more than likely. Because you've got a concept of how the Bible works. That's another way, of course, to do Bible study. But the best way is to use the box top. You see, if your Bible knowledge is like a, a pile of random puzzle pieces, you don't need to feel embarrassed about that. If this is kind of your Bible knowledge that you know some of the stories, but it's all jumbled together, and you don't see how it all fits together, if that's you, you don't need to feel embarrassed about that. You simply haven't had anybody to hand you the box top before. Nobody's ever showed you the box top and how to put all of those pieces together. And so I just want you to know that that's kind of my goal tonight and the next four weeks after that. I just want to show you the box top. Because when you understand the box top, you can understand the, the individual stories that you're reading in the Bible. And so this is very basic, and a lot of you already know this, but I have to start with this foundational idea and here here it is in the bible we have 66 books that tell one story just that one statement is incredible to think about 66 books written at different times tell one story but it gets better than that we have 66 individual yet connected books that were written by 40 plus authors if I took 40 of you tonight and I gave you a chapter to write individually, separate from everybody else, and then you turned in your chapters and we put it together in a book, do you think it would make a lot of sense? No. But what we have in our Bibles is that we have 66 individually written letters, books, written by more than 40 authors, separated by years and by hundreds or thousands of miles, and yet all of that comes together into one central story. But then it gets even better than that. We have 66 individual yet interconnected books written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. It's not like they got these 66 authors together in a room and said, okay, we're going, to read, we're going to write the Bible. Everybody get your heads together. Let's try to develop a story here. Not the way it happened. They had 66 different books that were written by 40 plus authors separated by hundreds of miles and 1,500 years. And when you brought everything together, it was one unified divine story. We're going to talk about that story 
next week and try to summarize the story for you. But, you know, not every seminary student gets it right. This is just for fun. Relax. Don't take any notes. A young seminary graduate was seeking to pastor his first church. One pulpit committee requested an interview, and as the student and the committee gathered together, the chairman began the questioning. That is a frightening thing when you're a young seminary student and you're interviewing with the pastor search committee for the very first time. It's terrifying. So they began questioning this young seminary pastor. They said, young man, do you know your Bible? The young man replied, yes, sir, I know the Bible from front and back, front to back. Another asked, do you know the stories and the parables? And the young candidate answered, oh, yes, I know all the stories and the parables. Another committee member said, tell us one of the parables of Jesus. Let's say the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so he did. And it went like this. There was a man at the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night and he fell among the stony ground. And the thorns rose up and choked him nearly half to death. He said, what shall I do? Then he said, I shall arise and go to my father's house. And he arose and climbed into a sycamore tree. <laughs> the next day, Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came by, and they carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of him. And he was, as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair in a limb, and he hung there for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards he hungered, and the ravens came and fed him. The next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to Nineveh. And when he got down there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall. He cried out, chunk her down, boys. And they said, how many times shall we chunk her down? Unto seven times? And they said, nay, but under 77 times. So they chunked her down 490 times. Then she burst asunder in the midst, and they picked up twelve baskets full of fragments. And they asked him, Lord, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? The pulpit committee chairman said, folks, I think he is young, but he sure does know his Bible. We need to call him. And we're not always going to get it right. But maybe tonight will help us to get a better picture better understand really tonight I hope the, the scope of the Bible if you will oh, so let me just jump into it you got your notebooks ready we got a lot of ground to cover and the time remaining I want you to start if you want if you want to understand uh, the structure of the Bible you need to start by memorizing the following numbers in the order they are listed on the screen you need to memorize these numbers, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, and then 4, 1, 21, 1. I'll give you a moment to write those down. If you want to understand the structure of the Bible, this is a good place to start. Memorize these numbers. These numbers outline the books as they are recorded in our Bibles. And knowing the general order is extremely helpful in remembering the biblical message and understanding the biblical message. The Old Testament uh, consists, of course, of 39 books, which are represented by the first number sequence, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. That represents the Old Testament. The New Testament, of course, is 27 books, and they correspond to the second sequence, 4, 1, 21, 1. 
if you do nothing else this week, would you try to memorize that number sequence and try to remember, rehearse in your mind what that sequence means. And that's what I'm about to teach you in just a moment. You see, while the Bible has 66 books in two sections, it really does have one central unified story. And so, here's what I want to do. I want to take the the remaining few minutes and help you work through this number sequence. So that when when you read the Bible, you can understand where the story fits that you're reading. So, let's start. Number five. The first number five is, is the number that signifies the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The word Pentateuch, by the way, is derived from two Greek words, penta, which means five, and tukos, which means book. So these are, the Pentateuch are basically five books. The five books that were written by Moses... The Hebrews would call these five books the law or the Torah. By the way, these five books are considered the most sacred writings in Judaism. The most sacred writings. Every Jew knows the Pentateuch. Every Jew understands and has studied these first five books of the law or the Torah. And these five books that you see listed here, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these five books really serve as the backbone of the entire Old Testament. In fact, in some ways you could say these five books are the foundation of the entire story of the Bible. So these five books are foundational. The Pentateuch, that's the first five. Then as we go through this number sequence, we come to the number 12. And the number 12 represents the 12 books of history. The Pentateuch, of course, concludes with the death of Moses, at which time a new leader is chosen to lead God's people into the promised land. And so that then leads us into these 12 books of history because these are the books that chronicle the experiences of God's people in the land that He gave them. Of course, these books consist of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These books cover a significant time span in Israel's history, as you can imagine. They are books of history. The history of God's people. The history of God's people rising to great heights of faithfulness. And the history of God's people falling to great depths of failure. The history of God's people as they established a monarchy as they wanted a king. The history of God's people of three generations and how tragedy struck and the nation was split by civil war. And we'll get into a lot of those kind of things. So don't worry about writing too much of that down. The history of God's people, how they were carried off to captivity in Babylon. And we'll talk about that and dates and those kind of things. I just want you to understand that the second big section of Scripture, the first big section is the, the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses. The second section is 12 books of history. 12 books that really describe the history of God's people in the promised land. Then the next five is five books of poetry. The five books of poetry are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. 
These books are referenced as poetry because of their poetic and musical nature, and the musical nature of some of the material. <clears throat> this part of the Bible really is a kind of a consolidated portion of Scripture that emphasizes our expression of praise to God. I'm not saying that every book is an expression of praise to God, uh, but a lot of it is. There are also, by the way, in this section of Scripture, laments. A lament is, a, is a, something that, that was said, a cry, if you will, because of intense suffering. You're lamenting this, you're crying out to God. That's also the books of poetry. And of course, Proverbs. Proverbs is a book that offers practical wisdom for living. And Song of Solomon expresses the love language of a marriage relationship. So those are books of poetry. Now, here's an interesting note. Make sure you write this down. Most of the material that was written during the time, uh, most of this material was written during the time of the books of history. Right? Most of the material was written during the time in which the events in the 12 books of history occurred. So, those 12 books of history are very, very important to understand. And most of the books of poetry were written during that time that's covered in the 12 books of history. All right, so let's go on to the next five is the major prophets. The major prophets being Isaiah, <clears throat> uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, by the way, these last two sections of the Old Testament, the five and the twelve, these last two sections are the major and the minor prophets. They make up about a, a one quarter of the entire Bible. So we're talking about a big portion of the Scripture when we talk about the major and the minor prophets. Now, don't be misled by the name prophet or the word prophet. For example, some people think that prophets were entirely focused on predicting the future. While many did predict future events with astonishing accuracy, the primary role of the prophet was to speak on behalf of God to his people. Uh, you might put down this word in your notes, Forth, F-O-R-T-H, forth telling. The primary role of a prophet was to say, thus saith the Lord. The primary role of the prophet was to speak on God's behalf to God's people. Forth telling, thus saith the Lord. Now there were some prophets who also did foretelling, F-O-R-E, foretelling. And that was indeed predicting the future. Predicting where the Messiah would be born. Predicting, uh, you know, those kinds of, that the Messiah in Isaiah 53 would, would suffer and would be beaten and all of those kind of, his wounds, all of those kind of things. Uh, so there is an element of foretelling for sure in the prophecies, the books of prophets. <clears throat> also, don't be misled by these words major and minor. The major prophets are not more important than the minor prophets. The major prophets are called major simply because of the size of the book. That the book is much longer than the other books of prophecy. I can summarize the message of the prophets in two words. Here, here's the two words to write down. One is condemnation and the other word is consolation. The role of the prophet, whether it was a major prophet or a minor prophet, the role of the prophet was to basically say, this is what God says. Sometimes it was a word of condemnation because of the sins of God's people. That the prophet would speak a word of condemnation because of the sin of God's people. And sometimes it was a word of consolation 
either comforting God's people or talking about the promise of the coming Messiah. Write this down, this is important. Like the books, books of poetry, most of this section occurred during the time in which the events of the 12 books of history took place. So let me rehearse that for you again. You have the five books of the law, then you have these 12 books of history, and most of the rest of the Old Testament occurred during that time of the 12 books of history. All right? So the major prophets were on the scene during those 12 books of history. So then we come to the last 12, and that is the minor prophets. You see them listed. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Again, they're not called minor because they are less, lesser of an importance, but they're called minor because of the size of the book that they wrote. The minor prophets wrote very small books. <clears throat> the minor prophets were succinct, and if you combine all 12 of the minor prophet books... I, this is kind of fascinating to me. If you take all the 12 minor prophets, combine everything that they wrote, it is approximately the same size as the one book of Isaiah. So it gives you an idea of why Isaiah is called a major prophet and the other ones are called minor prophets. It's really about the size of the material that they wrote. <clears throat> Most of the events that the minor prophets talk about, again occurred during the time of the books of history. So I, I want to show you this, this timeline. I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but I wanted to give you a visual of this. Because if you can get this in your mind, it's going to help you understand the Old Testament uh, in, in a very uh, clear way. So you have the five books of the Pentateuch. Then you have the 12 books of history. And then all those other parts of the Old Testament, the five books of poetry, the, the five books of the major prophets, the twelve books of the minor prophets, all of those occurred during that time of history that is recorded in those twelve books. If you can get that little nugget in your mind, it will really help you as you're reading some of these books. So those are the 39 books that make up the Old Testament. That's the basic structure. And if it will really help you if you can memorize those numbers, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, and not just the numbers 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, but understand what those numbers mean. So, don't look at your notes. Just God knows if you're cheating, by the way. Don't look at your notes. Let's just see if you, if you can come up with the answer. Because I want you to repeat this until it sticks. Here's, here's the first Test. If I were to give you a test, I was teaching this in college, and this would be, I'd hand you a piece of paper and say, what's the first five represent? And you would say, Pentateuch. First five books of the Old Testament. What's the next twelve, what's that twelve represent? Twelve books of history. Then what's the five? What did you say? Poetry, alright. And then the next five. Major prophets and then the twelve. You understand the Old Testament. Already, you understand the Old Testament. With that little structure, 512, 5512, 512, 512, 512, 512. And if you not just remember the numbers, but what that represents, you're beginning to get an idea of the structure of the Bible. Here's the one thing I can tell you about seminary students they learn the structure of the Bible. In seminary, you have to learn the structure of the Bible. And so that brings us to 
the next section that we will go through fairly quickly because it's much shorter. The New Testament has 27 books. Those 27 books are grouped into four categories. So that's that second section there, 4, 1, 21, 1. The four is easy, right? You know what the four is. The four is the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm not going to say a whole lot about the Gospels because next Sunday, uh, as I'm talking about the book of Luke, I'm going to talk more about the Gospels and why do we have four Gospels and all that kind of thing. So next Sunday and Sunday morning, I'm going to address some of those things. So I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. But I will say this. These books are likely the most recognizable part of Scripture for a lot of us. In other words, if you know any Bible stories, it's probably from the Gospels. These four books tell us about the life of Christ and they constitute just about a half of the New Testament. And it's, it's the section of the Bible we know the best. It's the section of the Bible we probably have heard the most. And uh, the Gospels are really simply the story of the one that was promised in the Old Testament. The Messiah promised in the Old Testament comes on the scene in the Gospels. And so, so that's the four, and again, I'm going to talk about that next Sunday, so I'm not going to get into the Gospels very much right now. And then one is a book of history. We call it the book of Acts. I, I re- referenced it this morning, uh, that Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's history because it chronicles the rise of the church from its inception until the expansion of the church beyond the borders of Israel. And say that one more time. It's history because it chronicles the rise of the church from its inception to its expansion beyond the borders of Israel. So you have a book of history in the New Testament just like you have how many books of history in the Old Testament? Twelve. You're, you're getting it. This book provides historical information called Acts. Historical information of the travels and the trials of the apostles after Jesus ascended back to heaven. It chronicles the key events in the spread of the gospel. Write this down. This this is really important because it it is a book of history. It chronicles the key events in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the Roman Empire. It chronicles. It is a book of history. It chronicles the key events in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the Roman Empire. And the main characters during this time, or the main characters in this book of history, are Peter and Paul. Those two men, their stories are told in this book of history called Acts. Then we come to the next one is the number 21, and this represents the 21 letters that are found in the New Testament. 13 are Pauline letters, 8 are called general letters letters. Uh, The 13 Pauline letters are these. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Some of these are letters to churches. You know this. Some of these are letters to churches. Some are letters to individuals. But these are all letters written by the Apostle Paul. And, And Paul wrote more letters or books of the New Testament than any other person. But who wrote who wrote more words? Luke, you're, you're listening. I just want to make sure. So we have the 13 of the 21 letters are Pauline letters. And then eight of the letters are called general epistles. 
general epistles. Now, the epistles were not the wives of the apostles. It's a preacher joke. The epistles, are, the word epistle simply means letters. So there are eight general epistles or eight general letters. In other words, they were sent to general audiences. They, they were often were, were shared and spread and they were not written to an individual person or an individual church. And the general letters are Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude. These letters are important because uh, they provide clarity about the doctrine of the church. Both the Pauline letters as well as the general letters, they provide clarity about the doctrine of the church and how the church operated and the guidance for Christian living. They give us a snapshot of the church and how the church developed and how faith is lived out. We, we understand how to be a Christian because of what we read in the letters. The letters, the 21 letters of the New Testament. We understand the challenges of living for Christ because of what we read in the 21 letters. So these letters are invaluable in our walk with the Lord. And then the last section is, of course, the one, that last one represents that book of prophecy that we call Revelation, the prophetic book that reveals the great events at the end of the world. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that Revelation not only ends the New Testament, it not only ends the Bible, it tells us how the world will end. It is a book of prophecy. Uh, in Revelation, Jesus is revealed in all of His glory. And think about it, in, in the Gospels, the opening of the New Testament, Jesus is revealed in His humanity. But when you come to Revelation, we see Jesus revealed in all of His glory. In the Gospels, we see Jesus abused and beaten and mocked and crucified in His humanity. But in Revelation, we see Jesus victorious over the entire world, speaking the word and armies will be obliterated. We see Jesus in the book of Revelation in all of His glory. And so I just want you to understand that the structure of the New Testament, we have 4-1-21-1, four Gospels, one book of history, 21 letters, and one book of prophecy. So, let's put up all the numbers. Now it makes sense to you, right? A few minutes ago, I was like, what in the world is all that? Now it makes sense to you. Now you have some homework for this week. Now you need to learn 5-12-5-5-12 and what those numbers represent. And you need to learn 4-1-21-1 and what those numbers represent. And if you can learn that string of numbers and what those numbers represent, the next time you open your Bible anywhere, you'll have a better idea of where that piece of the puzzle fits. I showed you the box top tonight. Shh. Don't tell Lisa. Thanks for being here. I, I really appreciate you being here. I just, let, let me close with this. The big picture matters. I guarantee you, if you go talk to a seminary student today in any of our six seminaries, they understand, it is drilled into them to understand the big picture of Scripture. 
We get so focused on trying to understand the piece of the Scripture we're looking at. And we don't give a lot of effort to understanding the big picture of Scripture. I want you to understand the big picture of Scripture like a seminary student would. And so if you'll be patient with me, next week, tonight we talked about the structure of the Bible. Next week we'll talk about the big story of the Bible. And then we're going to start inching our way down into the deeper waters. Is that good? All right. If you will work on those numbers this week, if you'll work on understanding the structure of the Bible, when you grasp it, you will find the text starting to grasp you. A light bulb will go on. And you'll have a better understanding of what the author meant when he wrote those words. Let's pray about that. God, we're grateful for your word that is eternal, your word that is uh, infallible, for your word that reveals your heart, for your word that reveals to us how to live our lives. Would you help us this week just to better understand the structure of the Bible? Be a better student to better understand how it all fits together. And as we have that time of, of trying to grasp how it all fits together, I pray for the Spirit of God to be our teacher. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.